Good morning, Sojourn Oak Forest. Can you hear me all right? All right. As Drew was saying earlier this morning, uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, the first Sunday of a new Christian year. The word Advent, as some of us might already know, means arrival or coming. That is, this is a season where we want to be reflective on the coming of Christ and what that means for us. We also want to reflect upon what it means to repent of our sins in preparation of that arrival. And so we, as we deck the halls of our homes and our workplaces, as we turn on the joyful music of what this Christmas season so often represents, we want to be reminded of what also it means to be sober and to contemplate um, the darkness of our hearts at times and the darkness of our world at times that his advent seeks to enlighten and to bring light to. During the next four weeks, we're going to want to ask ourselves as families and as a church family, why do we even need the advent of Christ? Or why was there a purpose of him coming in the first place? And so we, we do this because we want to feel the weight of how we need to long for his advent coming into our lives. And I encourage you to do the same and ask these questions with your children over the next few weeks. With that in mind, let's pray. Holy Father, we now turn to you. We ask you for help. We pray that we would see the prophets of old pointing to your coming and your arrival, the glory that it brings, that we would cast aside all of our presuppositions of what we think your arrival should mean to us, and instead we embrace that it brings about new creation, it brings about a different type of kingdom, and it brings about cosmic implications. We pray this, Father, knowing that we need your help now to understand, to dwell upon what the text means by your Spirit, and so we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So during our time in Italy, as a family, there was a city near our house on the Adriatic coast, a city called Rimini. Rimini was founded by the Roman Republic in 268 BC, so it's a very, very old city. And in that city, there is a pillar there that commemorates, and in the, in the city center, it commemorates Julius Caesar, when he came into the city with his legions and they were preparing to cross the Rubicon River to invade the Republic of Rome. History tells us that whenever Julius Caesar was on the bank of the river, he famously said in, in Latin, Alea Iacta Est, which literally means the die has been cast. He was speaking to the irrevocable risk that he would face now as a Roman general, by entering the city of Rome and declaring war on the Roman Republic and what that risk would mean. Three years later, after defeating Pompey's legions, Julius Caesar finally entered Rome and took Rome as his empire. Some almost 2,000 years later, the fascist Benito Mussolini, alongside 30,000 men dressed in black shirts, marched on the same city of Roma, in similar fashion. Mussolini stated that his, his agenda was similar to that of Julius Caesar and that he wanted Italy to be his empire. He wanted it to be a fascist empire, an empire of humanity, civilization, and peace. 
we see that with both of these arrivals, both of these men marched on the same city as rulers in the span of 2,000 years. They were hailed as absolute and divine rulers for a season. And then as the history tells us, their lives were brought down by the people that had once welcomed them in. I think that these points of history, these historical realities of Advent, speak to how we even might perceive what Jesus' Advent should be like for us this morning. But these two Advents also remind us of our own expectations as to how we should live in light of such an Advent. So with that in mind, let's go to the text. Our text is Luke chapter 19, from verses 28 to 40. And what we see in this text is that we are seeing the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life on earth. Ever since Luke chapter 9, Luke, the gospel writer, is telling us that Jesus has made up his mind. He's headed to Jerusalem. And even as far back as Luke 9, we see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration speaking with Elijah and Moses. Luke 9 tells us that they were speaking about his departure that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. The interesting thing here about the word departure is that in the Greek text, the word for departure is a little bit different. The word for departure is exodus. Exodus. So the exodus of Jesus is not just about his death, as the word departure might suggest to us English speakers. Jesus is not just leaving. He is about to start on a new endeavor, his exodus. So when we look at verses 28 and 29, we see that Jesus makes his way up to the Mount of Olives. Now when we look at the history, the redemptive history of God with his people all throughout the Bible, we see that olive trees throughout the text symbolize new creation. We can go back as far as the flood and We all know the story very well that after the flood waters started to subside, that Noah opened up the ark and he let out a dove, a dove that signified the spirit of Yahweh to go out and to seek new land. The dove came back with what? Anyone remember? An olive branch. An olive branch representing that new creation was coming And so in recreating something new, we see that Jesus in this text has been moving strategically. He's moving strategically and he's enacting a new revised version of Israel's conquest of Canaan. He passes specifically through villages, same villages that Israel would have passed in the conquest of Canaan after their exodus. He passes through Jericho before entering Jerusalem. And so whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not, in this text, Jesus' timing is intentional, the places are intentional, and his movements are intentional. And yet I'm afraid that the temptation for us as modern people is to look at this story and to not understand the full weight of its implications on our lives. I, for one, I remember when I first heard this story told to me as a child, I didn't understand what the story meant. It didn't seem like that triumphant of an arrival. And maybe it was perhaps because it was told to me in a way that even if it were special, it was not going to actually change my life. Are we ready for this type of Advent? Advent. 
According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, there could have been more than two million people gathered in the city of Jerusalem during Passover week when Jesus was making his entry. Upwards of two million people. Now, just to kind of give you some perspective, how many of you know the size of Woodland Heights? The old city of Jerusalem was just three times the size of Woodland Heights. So think of trying to have two million people gathered in that type of an area. What were people thinking? As people in the gates, on the walls of the city, looking at this arrival, what were they expecting to see? Were they thinking that this was just some small pact of rebellion trying to seek attention? Or was this arrival going to actually change the outcome of the world? How do we live? How do we live when we see such an arrival? How do we live at such an advent? Do we reflect upon what his coming means in our lives? Or do we just read this story as any other Christmas story? It's kid-friendly. It's fun. It's nice. It's Christmas. But what I think the writer Luke wants us to see this morning is that Jesus' arrival isn't just about bringing new creation to a world that needs it, but it's also about inaugurating a different type of kingdom than we would expect. If you look with me from verses 29 to 35, we see that Luke the writer, he devotes five verses, five verses out of 12 to the means of Jesus' transport. It's a lot of verses to that. What is he trying to say? What is he trying to communicate? And the question I have is this. If Jesus has traveled on foot from the Mount of Transfiguration, 12 miles, and he only has two miles to complete his journey to Jerusalem, why would you now choose to get on an animal? We have to remember his intentions. We have to remember that his movements are intentional, the places are intentional, and his timing is intentional. And for the lack of time that we had this morning, I want to just focus on the donkey if we can. Jesus' request for a colt, that is a donkey, gives us echoes. Echoes from the Old Testament where lots of animals were used that had not been used, were used to be set aside and used and blessed for sacred and holy endeavors. And so Jesus' decision for a donkey that had not yet been sat upon is really trying to highlight something for us. Many people, when they go to this text, they try to immediately go to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9 that speak about, Israel, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. And that's all well and true. But I want to show you this morning how, how vast this prophecy even was for Israel. How far back it goes. You turn with me to Genesis in chapter 49. As far back as Genesis we see, this is the nature of the Son of Man's kingdom. And this is what it would represent. So Jacob is prophesying on behalf of his son's lineage, on behalf of his son's seed, Judah. And Jacob, in Genesis 49, verse 10, says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him will be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So according to Jacob, even speaking about Judah's line, Judah's future kingdom fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that type of kingdom, according to Jacob, would arrive with a donkey and a donkey's foal. 
That is to say, it would arrive with peace and humility. And we see this, don't we, throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at all the texts, but throughout the entire Old Testament, we see that the kingdom of the Son of Man is not a normal kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a horse-driven kingdom that always looks for war. Instead, we see that it is a kingdom of peace. Psalms chapter 46, he makes war cease in all the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. Isaiah chapter 2, he beats swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. The nations cease to learn war. So as the nature of his kingdom is peace, we see that his followers reflect the nature of that kingdom. In these 12 verses, we see complete obedience from Jesus' disciples. His request to go and get a donkey from the village of Bethany sounds strange. It doesn't sound like an arrival that a king of Israel should make coming in to take on Rome, and yet they go. When they arrive in the village of Bethany, they ask the people there for their animals. Those people do not protest. They give what the Lord needs. They let them take their animals. And so in the same way, we see in the, in, the, in the redemptive history of God, in the same way that a virgin womb and an unused tomb were both used to carry the King of Kings, the Christ, so also this unsat upon donkey will have the same privilege to carry the King of the universe. But are we ready, church family, for this type of a coming? Are we ready for it? What does his coming, what does his kingdom require of us that we may not be willing to give? As we are stepping into this very busy Christmas season, where is the focus of our hearts? Are we living in the spirit of his coming or are we distracted instead with the worry and the stress and the materialism that comes with such a season? But I think that What Luke, the writer, wants to show us is not that his kingdom brings about just new creation or it brings about a different nature of a kingdom with peace and humility, but there are cosmic implications to what is happening here before us. If you look back with me in verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Perhaps to those looking from the city gates, looking down on this entry, maybe they were thinking this wasn't going to be much. Maybe they were thinking, this is just another typical Jewish rebellion where there is some guy, some tragic story with huge promises, but it's not going to end well like the last rebellions ended well. He was dead within a week. Maybe when we look at this Advent, we struggle in the same way. We can easily look around us at the church, the global church and our society as a whole, and in the midst of such division and scandal, it can be hard for us to see how does his kingdom come. We speak of love and yet we find it hard to love. 
We speak of peace, and yet we are always continually fighting. The church doesn't, at times, many times, the church doesn't seem united in one accord, fulfilling the will of Christ. So when we are thinking about these things, and we're thinking in this way, we are tempted. We're tempted to somehow think that the only hope we do have may be spiritual. Maybe his kingdom doesn't come on earth as we think it should. Maybe we're just here on this earth for a season, and therefore we just live how we need to, because we'll be just snatched up in the end. Maybe we tend to be tempted that all of our hopes and dreams are only spiritual, and that this prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it just doesn't look like it's going to be accomplished, so I'd rather be on board with something spiritual only. Can we be tempted to think like that with our lives, with our hearts, and with our possessions? I know, I get it. When we look at the visible surface of this text, when we look at verses 36 through 38, Jesus' advent looks much lower and much weaker than the advents of Caesar and Mussolini. And yet, I think that if we look deeper, we will see something greater. Look back with me at verses 37 and 38. There is some unique language here in this text, unique and unlike any of the other gospels that speak about this narrative. The first thing we see in verses 37 and 38, we see that Jesus' disciples are praising God for all of the mighty works that they had seen. And that mighty works there is power in the text. The second thing we notice is that they are blessing God for he who comes. That is, they are blessing the Father God for the coming arrival of the Son. The third thing we notice in this text is there is a declaration of peace in heaven, which is juxtaposed to the peace on earth we remember from the angels giving it to the shepherds that night in Luke chapter 2. The fourth thing we notice is that there is glory given for power that is coming from on high. And so the four themes we see in this text is our power, coming, heaven, and glory. A few chapters later in Luke 21, we see that Jesus tells the crowds that they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Sound familiar? Now many people think of this as a prophecy that is some sort of future event. A future event at the end of time where Jesus physically comes down from heaven, enters earth's atmosphere, and enters on a cloud physically before us. I think that something different is happening here. I think Jesus instead is touching on imagery we find in the prophet Daniel. If you go with me to the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is what the prophet Daniel says in relation to how the kingdom of the Son of Man will come, how it will arrive. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, that word there is power, by the way, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. So we see 
something similar. We see a coming, we see a cloud, power, and glory. So with that in mind, I want us to think through this text again, and I want to read it differently, or at least I want us to look at it differently. Jesus, in ascending to the Mount of Olives, is literally ascending from Jericho in the Mount of Transfiguration. He is ascending 3,000 feet in altitude. As he ascends those 3,000 feet, he is sat upon a donkey, on a royal and kingly donkey, signifying a kingdom of peace. And he rides towards the temple in Jerusalem, where the actual physical spirit of God is residing in the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, where the glory cloud of God has been enshrined there since the exodus of Israel. He is riding up to that. He is riding up to the earthly copy of the throne room of the ancient of days what is he writing over luke's gospel tells us that he's writing over cloaks garments clothing in their culture laying your your garments before a person or laying your garments under a person to sit on was a sign of putting that person over you in authority to have dominion and power over you and so Jesus, when he's riding on these cloaks and he's, the donkey's riding over the cloaks, he's showing the same power and dominion over people who are gladly submitting to his kingdom reign. In John's gospel and in Mark's and Matthew's, we see palm tree branches instead being thrown on the ground before Jesus. And what those gospels are pointing to is they're pointing back to Israel's past in history when they were in the wilderness And palms gave them shade in the hot sun. In fact, the word in Hebrew for cover makes two words. One word that it makes is palm trees. And the second word it makes is clouds. So why would they be putting palm tree branches unless in their minds they were signifying Jesus coming to the Ancient of Days riding on coverings, on clouds. These palm tree branches point to the covering in the shade of God's glory, the symbol of that cloud, which was the tabernacle in the wilderness, leading the people through the wilderness. And so to the crowds and the Pharisees, I imagine that this entry looked pretty futile. To the world, this entry may have looked like other entries, other conquests, other advents, such as Caesar and Mussolini. And yet the Son of Man is doing something different here. The Son of Man is reversing all expectations of a temporary, earthly, ethnic Israel reign. And instead, he is offering the terms of his kingdom. He is no Caesar He is no Mussolini, but instead he is exalted higher as the son of man. And he comes to his authority by riding on clouds with power and glory, as we see in the prophet Daniel. An image that is not merely earthly, that is not merely human, but it is cosmic and it is heavenly. We see a final consummation of new creation coming with the advent of Christ. But this inauguration, this final consummation is coming together in his body. He's not just coming to that temple 2,000 years ago. 
He's coming into these temples. His exodus being so different from the first brings a long awaited escape from the slavery of our sin into a new world, a new world flowing with milk and honey in which the slave masters are thrown into the sea. And yet a new family of faith, both Gentile and Jew can now come together and find freedom. What Jesus is doing in this text is he is inaugurating an exodus. The only exodus that now matters. A cosmic exodus. But if this is the nature of his arrival to us this morning. That is, it reverses expectations. It brings about a a unique paradox as to what a kingdom should be. If that is so unique, then how might we respond as God's family, as God's people? I want to leave us with two thoughts to take home today with our families and ourselves. How should we respond to this type of advent? The first point is this. I would think that this type of advent is prompting us as the people of God to have humility. That is, to be humble in the way we live our lives. We see this in the text. We see this in the willingness of Jesus' disciples following the commands of Jesus throughout the narrative. By throwing their garments on the ground and on the donkey, they are symbolizing humility and submission to their king. When he tells them to go and get the animals of his arrival, they go. They go about the Lord's business even when it sounds strange. So in the same way for us this morning, when we see a need, when we believe the Lord may be calling us to something, or asking of us something, or requiring of us something, how do we respond? Now from my experience, and from yours as well, just to let you know, walking by sight will always be easier than walking by faith. But walking by faith is what the Lord requires when he asks it of us. What are we willing to cast down before the King of Kings that means so much to us. The second point I want to leave us with is his advent should break as well the idolatry of the temple. That is the idolatry in the temple. And what does that mean for us? What's unique about this passage is that all of this passage smells of royalty. But instead of going into Jerusalem and making a beeline for the palace, which is what a king should do, this king goes straight for the temple. And I know that commentators say there are different and various reasons and motives to why he drives out the money changers after this scene, after this triumphal entry scene. But I don't necessarily think that Jesus is condemning selling or buying sacrifices. The temple was set up for that. If you remember instead, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that they have made my house a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer for the nations, right? Now, I'm not a, an expert on robbery, especially the ones in this text which mean revolutionaries against Rome, but I would imagine that 
robbers don't typically do their violence and their stealing and their robbery and their murdering inside their den. You know, typically a den is a safe place. What would happen is probably they would go out of their safe place, their safe heaven, safe haven, and they would do all of their crime, do everything that their hearts desire, and then come back each day or each week to that safe place, to that safe den, where they could somehow escape the consequences of their sin and somehow try to seek out Yahweh's approval. I think this is what Jesus is implying here. And his advent is breaking into the idolatry of those who would use the temple as a means of covering up the sin in their lives. So in the same way, this morning, how does his advent break into our lives? How does his advent inform what we do outside of this Sunday gathering? Outside our parish weekly gathering. In other words, when you and I are alone, what do we love most? When you and I are alone or with others, the other six days a week, What do we spend our time on most? What do we stress about most? And what do we love and worry about most? Before coming back to a safe place like this one and feeling like we can feel different. How are we the other six days of the week? Does the advent of God, does it also reveal the idolatry of our hearts? As we close, I know that this year may be may have been, up until now, really difficult for many of us. I know that some of us here are just really tired and fed up with being lonely. Maybe the life of being single is just not what we thought it would be. There are those of us who have felt marginalized this past year. We didn't have friends. We didn't have people that cared for us. Those of us with families, our children are not listening the way we think they should. We discipline and we discipline and we try new things, but they're just not listening. It's hard to find happiness in a marriage. We are tempted in this season to fill up all of those anxieties and worries and sadness with just another busy Christmas season. What's strange about Matthew's gospel with the triumphal entry is that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives a, a different scenario. Matthew says that, that Jesus, as he comes into the city gate, that the city was stirred up by his arrival. And then Matthew says, the city posed this question to Jesus when he came in. Who is this? Who is this? I don't know about you, but there have been many times this year when Jesus' advent tries to come to my heart, I give that question. Who are you? Who is this? Does his advent break the temple of our hearts? Malcolm Geit is an Anglican poet-priest, and I want to read his poem about Christ's triumphal entry into our hearts 
before we pray. And I hope and I pray that this poem stirs up the affections of your hearts as it did mine this past week. Malcolm Geit writes, Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Oh, the crowds of easy feelings, they make a start. They raise their hands, they get caught up in the singing, and they think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he's bringing, changes their tune. I know what lies behind. The surface flourish that so quickly fades, self-interest and fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of this perverted temple. Jesus, come break my resistance and make me your home. Sojourn Oak Forest, may we this Advent season open up our homes and our hearts and our possessions to the coming of Christ's peaceful rule. May we ask the Lord to convict us where we are not allowing his authority and his dominion and his reign and his kingship to have that reign in our lives. So that from the humble dining room tables of our homes on a weekly basis to the ministries of this church family, we may point people to the nature of our Lord's kingdom. That it is not just an earthly one. That it is not just bringing about new creation, bringing about a peaceful and humble rule. It's not about just cosmic implications, but it is about coming in to break the idols, the inner idols of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your arrival. Thank you for your coming into our lives through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are Emmanuel. You are a high priest. We can come to you now and we can confess our sin. We can not only confess our sin, we can, we can break bread with you now. We can eat with you as our king. We pray, Lord, that you would lift us up and that you would help us to reflect upon idols this week as a family as couples, as lives, individual lives. May we be a blessing in pointing people to the true nature of your reign and kingdom. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.